1: Revealing the hidden secrets of the sea, this is Naked Oceans.
2: Hello and welcome to Naked Oceans. It's a year since we first took the naked scientists beneath the waves and ventured into the marine realm, so we're taking a look back to bring you a one-hour special featuring some of our favourite bits from the last year of marine science and conservation. We'll be calling in on coral reefs, the deep sea, and revisiting one of my top favourite moments when I heard about a seahorse surgery. You've been operating on seahorses?
3: We have a vet that actually did one of the first laser surgeries on a seahorse.
2: Hello, I'm Helen Scales, and with me is Sarah Caster-Perry. Hello. We'll also choose
4: our top marine critters of the year, and we'll be giving you an exclusive glimpse into the making of Naked Oceans.
2: Oh my God, that was cheesy.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's right. We're cracking open the Naked Oceans outtakes reel to show you a little bit of what goes on behind the scenes.
1: Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans, on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans.
4: You're listening to Naked Oceans with Sarah Caster Perry and Helen Scales, and this month we're bringing you highlights of top marine science and conservation from the last year. Coming up, we revisit a major milestone in ocean exploration with the world's first senses of marine life. But first, let's kick things off with some
2: news. Helen, why don't you start us off? Okay. well, for as long as there have been man-made boats and ships, there have also been marine hitchhikers that have grabbed a ride, sticking to holes and causing all sorts of trouble by increasing drag. Well, barnacles are the biggest problem when it comes to marine fouling, and now scientists have uncovered the gene that stops them from settling on surfaces, painted with a potential new anti-fouling agent that's being trialled in the EU. It's a veterinary sedative called metatomidine. Well, when free swimming barnacle larvae encounter metatomidine, it makes them hyperactive. They kick their legs about and wriggle about, so they can't settle down and turn into adults and when they swim off, the effect reverses, so the larvae just happily swim off and settle somewhere else, but not on a boat, and that's the key thing. Well, the research team led by Anders Blomberg from the University of Gothenburg have identified the gene responsible for barnacles sensing and responding to the chemical. Well, in the past, the main anti-fouling chemical was tributyltin, otherwise known as TBT. But in 2008, it was banned worldwide because it's actually pretty toxic and it's got a very persistent effect on marine ecosystems and maybe people as well. So the search has been on for a suitable alternative and metatomidine was thought to be it. But other lab studies published by Anna Lenquist, also at the University of Gothenburg, identified possible ecological impacts of this new anti-fouling agent. It's causing things like fish to lose their dark skin pigments, which reduces their camouflage against predators, and it might also affect their livers. So it's Unclear at the moment whether metatomidine will leach into the marine environment in quantities that will have any kind of significant effect. So it just really suggests that we need to tread really carefully when it comes to trying to find an alternative to TBT. And hopefully understanding the molecular pathways that keep barnacles at bay should lead towards highly selective treatments that will only affect those unwanted hitchhikers while leaving the rest of the marine world well alone.
4: Really interesting stuff. Well, moving from barnacles to starfish now, I've got a story about a group led by Daniel Janies from The Ohio State University, who have used molecular sequencing, developmental data and supercomputers from the Ohio Supercomputer Center to solve a taxonomic problem involving echinoderms. Now, echinoderms include creatures like sea urchins, starfish, sea cucumbers and sea lilies. But how the different classes of living echinoderms are related to each other has caused problems over the years, with one particular deep-sea specimen giving taxonomists a headache. It's called xyloplax, and it's a tiny disc-shaped animal about four millimetres across found in the deep sea around New Zealand and the Bahamas. It didn't fit with the body plans of any of the other groups, so it was placed in a whole separate class of its own, a sixth echinoderm class, alongside asteroidea, which are the starfish, Ophiuroidea, including brittle stars Holothuroidea, which are the sea cucumbers Echinoidea, which are the sea urchins And Crinoidea, which are the sea lilies But now the group led by Daniel Janies Have found that actually Xyloplax belongs within the Asteroidea With the starfish They examined specimens caught by Janet Voight Another one of the paper's authors To show that Xyloplax broods its young in a special chamber Just like other groups of starfish And study its development as well They were able to extract genes from the specimens to compare with 86 other echinoderm species and non-echinoderm outgroups to create a phylogenetic tree, which places Xyloplax with the starfish. But why doesn't it look like a starfish? Well, Janies and his colleagues suggest that Xyloplax's circular appearance is due to a process called progenesis, where individuals reach sexual maturity whilst keeping their juvenile body plan. Now, progenesis, along with another process called neoteny, are examples of pedamorphosis, where adults of a species either retain features of juveniles in neoteny, and an example of this would be something like the external gills that you can see on an axolotl, or they completely retain the juvenile body plan whilst being sexually mature, which is progenesis, as is the case here and there aren't actually that many robust examples of pedamorphosis in nature but it has been suggested that it's a possible route that vertebrates could have evolved by and in human evolution too so it kind of really helps to have more examples of it and it'll hopefully allow us to understand it better in the future.
2: Absolutely. Well, from a story about one of the littlest creatures that live in the sea to one of the biggest because I've got an awesome story about the biggest fish in the oceans with news that scientists in Mexico have discovered the largest mass gathering of whale sharks in the world. Well, these gentle giants can grow up to around 12 metres or 40 feet in length, which means that spotting just one of them as they cruise through the oceans is an unforgettable experience and I can definitely vouch for that. So imagine what it must be like spotting a gang of more than 400 whale sharks. Well, that's what a team of researchers from Mexico and the US did back in the summer of 2006 when they've spotted a huge aggregation site, which they've named Afuera, from a plane flying off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula in the Caribbean Sea. And since then, they've been back each year to carry out studies from the air and in the water to try and figure out what's going on. And in 2009, they spotted the largest aggregation ever seen to date – of 420 whale sharks in an area covering just 12 square kilometres. Well, the big question about these big fish is, why do they do it? Well, when any group of animals gather together en masse like this, there's really only two possible explanations. Sex or food. And in this case, for the whale sharks in Afuera and elsewhere... Where other small aggregations form, it turns out to be usually the latter. Well, I've seen whale sharks in Ningaloo Reef in Western Australia, where they gather to feed on the spawn of coral reefs, which undergo these mass spawning events. And at another aggregation in Belize, whale sharks are after the eggs of dog snappers, which also spawn in big aggregations. At Afuera in Mexico, the research team sieved the sea for plankton and found that it was awash with fish eggs. And using DNA barcoding, they found that this was actually a species of tuna called the little tunny. Now, these eggs come packed with fats, making them superb whale shark food. And it's thought that that's exactly why the whale sharks turn up, because they feed on these tuna eggs. And it's thought that the reason the tuna show up and spawn in this spot is thanks to the upwelling along the coast that injects a pulse of nutrients into the ecosystem. Well, there's another smaller aggregation close to Apuera that we've known about for a couple of years and that's recently been protected by the Mexican government and that one already draws in flocks of tourists who, quite understandably, are keen to swim with the biggest sharks in the ocean. Well... Researchers are a little bit worried, actually, that um, you know problems could be caused with collisions between sharks and high-speed boats, and with all this tourist activity. You know, we, we just have to keep an eye on what's going on, and they're calling for swift action to protect the animals in this new extraordinary natural event. So hopefully, they'll be still there for generations to come. Um, and if you want to read about the amazing discovery of the Afuera shark aggregation, there's an open access paper in the journal PLOS One, um, and there's also a fantastic picture there of uh, of this aggregation from the air and it just looks like a collection of ants there's so many of them and we'll put up a link to that on our website where you'll also find information about the other aquatic stories from this week and lots more that's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans
1: making waves about the underwater world this is naked oceans
2: You're listening to Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and Sarah Castor-Perry. A major landmark in ocean science was reached in October 2010 with the completion of the world's first census of marine life. It was ten years in the making, involved hundreds of scientists all across the globe who joined forces to take on the enormous challenge of discovering as much as possible about the abundance, diversity and distribution of life in the oceans. Sarah and I went along to a special conference in London that celebrated the achievements of the census. To find out how the whole thing got started, we chatted to Jesse Ossibel from the Sloan Foundation about a very big idea he had a little over ten years ago.
0: On July 2nd, 1996, a deep-sea expert uh, named Fred Grassley walked into my office and said, I think something big needs to be done for marine life, for marine biodiversity, and... He said, obviously, that's because overfishing and pollution and problems, but also because so much remains to be discovered. He had published an estimate there there might be between 1 and 10 million forms of marine life. And so I said, well, Fred, give me a list of what's actually known today. And he was embarrassed. He said, I can't give you a list. We don't have one. And I said, but people have been doing marine biology since Aristotle for 2,500 years. How can you not have a list? There must be a textbook with a list of all the forms of marine life. And he said, well, you know, the sponge people have their lists, but they don't always agree with the corals people, and they don't talk to the anchovy people, and the anchovy people don't like the tuna people, and the tuna people don't like the shark people, because sharks sometimes attack tuna. So so he said, you know, there. There's a lot of information, but it, it's just not organized, and most of the ocean's unexplored. So so we talked for about an hour and a half, and at the end of the hour and a half, we had the idea to have a big observational program in which we'd have hundreds of expeditions and really try to get better real information observations. And Fred also had the basic idea. He said, but we have to have a common database. So the anchovy people and the sea star people and the herring people can't all just go off in different directions. So we really want to know everything. So we both thought the idea was wonderful, and we went off in separate directions and started talking to our colleagues about it. And most people said the idea is wonderful, and most people said the idea is crazy. Some of them said it's romantic. Some of them said it's impossible. But no one said don't try to do it. You know, it it made people somehow smile or laugh that we wanted to count all the fish in the sea. So we had three whole years of feasibility studies during 1997, 98, 99. So we did do our homework. We had lots of consultations. We wanted to make sure that the technology was powerful enough. We wanted to make sure that people would cooperate. We wanted to make sure that if we finished, as we've now done, that people would feel it was worthwhile. So we had three years of feasibility studies, at the end of which more people felt it was a great idea, and some people still thought it was crazy. But fortunately, the people with the checkbook at the Sloan Foundation said, well, we should take risks. That's why we're here. You know, we're not like a federal government agency. We should take a chance on something. And uh, the president and the trustees of Sloan said, we will support this program for 10 years as long as it meets certain milestones. And that's very important because if you, uh, if you talk to lots of naked scientists, you know that it's hard to get clothing for more than one year two years at a time. Uh, it's very hard to get long-term commitments. So the fact that one organization, even though it couldn't provide all the money, in the end it provided you know 12 percent of the money, but it said we you know we will be steady. We'll provide basic support every year, so you all can talk to each other, coordinate, make your plans, and if you do well each year, you know we're just going to keep keep supporting you until you finish in 2010. And so in 2000 we started organizing. And Fred's view was we should get in the water quickly. We'd already had some years of feasibility studies, but he said, you know, many programs, you write a plan, and then you write, a pla- you write a plan to write a plan to write a plan, and people spend 10 years planning and never get in the water or launch the rocket. And so Fred said, let's start doing things right away, showing the kinds of work that we should think should be done, and then try to attract people to the project by example, rather than by just inviting people to write documents. And so we started right away, in, uh, in, uh, immediately in 2000, 2001, with some expeditions, in which we tried to again show that we were we were interested not only in the squid, but lots, you know, but we were interested in what lived on the bottom, and we were interested in seabirds, <laughs> all of the different forms of marine life, and people became enthusiastic. In the end, almost everyone participated, even though you know we never. We never went out and dragged people in, but people, it was a kind of voluntary Noah's Ark. So the Abyssal Plains people and the Seamounts people and the Reefs people, they just kind of started to come to us and say, well, we want to be part of this. And uh, it grew, and by 2004, 2005, we basically had all the different habitats and the different species represented.
2: And uh, I can see by the grin on your face that it's a, clearly a wonderful experience for you to be here, stood here, 10 years down the line, with your crazy, romantic, impossible project finished
0: It's been the best experience of my professional career, maybe the best experience of my life. I feel a little bit like an Olympic diver who chose a very hard dive and then you know you do the triple somersault and it worked so I have a little bit of that feeling today so I'm, I'm very proud and what we of course I'm proud because what we've done is important also because you know it's not easy being a fish these days and uh, we should be a lot more sensitive about uh, how we treat life in the oceans.
2: Jessie Ossabel, the co-founder of the Census of Marine Life, telling me, Helen Scales, about how the whole grand project got started. We really did have
4: a fantastic time at the census conference and not just because of lots of champagne. Uh, It was great to meet so many scientists who dedicated themselves to studying the ocean, from people using DNA barcoding to identify tiny critters to those tracking the global migrations of ocean giants like sharks and whales. And we got to meet one of our absolute heroes, the legendary explorer Sylvia Earle. Here's what she had to say about the census.
5: It's been said several times and I'll... Say it again, this is a wonderful beginning. Ten years is a long time, and it has set the stage for whatever follows. This really has stirred things up and makes it perfectly obvious that the great era, maybe the greatest era of exploration, is truly just beginning. Some think that it's all over, that we have to reach skyward to find new frontiers, and of course we can find them there. We need to do that. But mostly we need to get to know this part of the universe, this part of the solar system, this place that keeps us alive. It's critical in terms of that great dream of humankind, and that is to have peace. We cannot have peace among ourselves if we fail to make peace with nature. And we're not. Right now, we're not. We're cutting forests that have been growing for thousands of years. We're mining the ocean of its wildlife that have been, has been developing for hundreds of millions of years. And I can forgive it only on the basis that people just don't know. They, they don't know. And yet, we have the power of knowing, and the census of marine life has gone a long way toward putting things in perspective, that not only... Have we just begun to get to know this ocean planet and to appreciate that our lives are dependent on the ocean and the creatures? It's not just rocks and water out there. It's a living system. It gives us oxygen. It grabs the carbon out of the atmosphere. It drives the food waves. drives not just the carbon cycle and the oxygen cycle, but the water cycle. It's where 99%, 97% of the water on the planet is. And... Without the ocean, no rain, no water, no life. We absolutely are dependent. We are sea creatures every bit as much as those magnificent numbers of individuals that the Census of Marine Life has been cataloging and celebrating at this occasion.
2: That was the wonderful Sylvia Earle, pioneer of deep sea exploration. She spent thousands of hours underwater and still holds the record for walking on the seabed deeper than anyone else after she ventured down 400 metres inside a diving suit called Jim back in 1979. That is pretty impressive, but 400 metres is nothing compared to the
4: depths that we can now explore thanks to manned and unmanned deep-sea subs. The deepest manned dive went nearly 11 kilometres down. But there's a whole host of challenges associated with being several kilometres below the ocean's surface, both for the research vehicles and if you're one of the marine creatures or microbes the vehicle has been sent to collect. I went to Scripps Institution of Oceanography to speak to Professor of Marine Microbial Genetics Professor Douglas Bartlett and engineer extraordinaire Kevin Hardy to find out more. Here's Professor Bartlett.
6: There's so much diversity of of microbial life in the ocean in general and especially in the deep sea and we just don't know a lot of what's there. So there's all this biology that's just waiting to be explored. And so we're, we've been taken up with that. I have been... Uh, told of this quote that came out of the Census for Marine Microbial Life that there's the equivalent of, I think it's something like 35 full-grown African elephants worth of microbes for every man, woman, and child on, on the planet. And most of those microbes in the ocean are in the, in the deep ocean, maybe not in extreme deep ocean environments, but but found at depth. And so there's a lot of diversity of life down there. We're interested in the adaptations of microbial life To deep ocean settings because they're so different. They're dark. The way microbes get nutrients in the deep ocean is very different from that in surface waters. They're adapted to low temperatures as a rule, and they're adapted to high hydrostatic pressure. And it's this last parameter high pressure that we've really been focusing on. And it would be wonderful to be able to get those organisms into culture to more easily do biochemistry and genetics. It'd also be useful to, to look at their genomes and do culture independent molecular analyses and to look at processes like CO2 fixation and other biogeochemical cycles.
4: So, if you look at something like a bacterium or an, a microorganism, something's very small, do they face different challenges from the high pressure than something like a larger bodied
7: animal?
6: The general problems that a microbe would face would be very similar to the cells of of any organism, an invertebrate or a vertebrate. It all has to do with high-pressure influences on volume changes of equilibria and of activation. So biochemical processes are very different under high pressure, and all organisms are going to face that issue.
4: And so how do they get around these issues? What what adaptations have they come up with that help them solve it?
6: The most well-studied adaptation has to do with membrane lipids. The membrane lipids of deep ocean organisms, fish to bacteria, are loaded with highly unsaturated fatty acids. And that's critical to keeping the membrane in the right physical state a semi-liquid state so that it can function for transport and for energetics and for other processes.
4: So how exactly do you go and retrieve samples of these things is that what you do you go and then you bring them back and study them in the lab Do you have a I guess you can't really necessarily study them in situ because you just kind of look at them and you think I don't really know what's going on there.
6: Yeah, it's hard to to, to explore microbial activities and processes in situ, but that's a, a growing area of development in the ocean sciences that is coming up with more autonomous instruments that allow you to go where you need to go and to measure those parameters that you'd like to measure. But what we usually do is... We work with an engineer here at at Scripps who comes up with these wonderful untethered toys that can be deployed from relatively small ocean craft and sink all the way down to the deepest ocean uh, depth and can be used to collect water samples and mud and um, to, to collect animals using beta traps and things like that. And after a prescribed time, we'll release their ballast, close the doors of whatever it is that they're sampling, seawater or animals like crustaceans, and come back up to the surface. And we get those samples at the surface, and then we process them. So far, it's been, it's been valuable. We've been getting new kinds of microbes, in some cases not just new species or, or, or genera of microbes, but even new subphyla and phyla of microbes coming up that hadn't been cultured previously from deep ocean environments
4: and finally i spotted earlier that little tiny polystyrene cup on your windowsill is that something that was taken down in one of these little unmanned subs
6: what a great question um you know i don't even remember where this came from uh it either came from one of those small untethered instruments, or it looks like, in, in this case, it came from a, a dive with the Alvin submersible. I see. And so that probably went down just a couple kilometers in depth. But some of these instruments that we deploy have been used at depths uh, as great as nine kilometers or so.
4: So, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm guessing it was once a sort of normal-sized polystyrene cup, and it's now sort of the size of a very small egg cup. It's an illustration of the pressures that we're looking at, I suppose. It
6: it is, it is. Uh, This is a perfect example of how high pressure promotes volume decreases, and it does that to a styrofoam cup. The high pressure, the, the styrofoam cups get compressed to something like ceramic and greatly decreased in size.
4: So I suppose that is a great illustration of the problems that microbes like that face in the deep sea. It is, and,
6: and also for people who want to deploy instruments in the deep ocean because everything has to be designed so that it can cope with high pressure. So pressure housings are necessary for, for every component of equipment that gets deployed down deep. And whether it's a, a man submersible or an autonomous instrument or some cabled array it all has to be pressure resistant.
4: Well speaking of taking stuff down to the deep ocean and how exactly we go about looking at all the the microbes and all the life down there we're now joined by Kevin Hardy. Kevin hello. Hi. So I I hear that you have quite a lot of exciting gadgets and instruments that you might be able to show us.
8: We have some of the tools of science that get us down to the deepest ocean depths so just across the hall.
4: Let's go let's go. Wow, this is quite an exciting room full of gadgets and big yellow spheres. What what exactly am I looking at here?
8: Uh, This here is actually uh, one of our deep ocean vehicles. It's a small 17-inch outside diameter glass sphere with an acoustic transponder up on top so we can acoustically communicate with it at depth. And uh, gives us about 54 pounds of buoyancy as well as command control. So that gives us a, a, a payload capability, which means we can haul stuff down to the deep ocean. Um, and
4: then haul stuff back up, I guess. And then haul stuff
8: back up. Yes, yeah, it should be a round trip. So we have uh, one of our frames right here. We actually try to use uh, fiberglass uh, reinforced plastic, FRP, because the water weight is so much lighter. And then we attach uh, plastic bottles onto here. So even though it looks large... Underwater really weighs nothing, so we can carry uh, large volumes of water back to the surface.
4: Well, it's quite noisy in here, so should we, should we take a couple of your exciting gadgets back to the office and we can, we can have a look at them sure. in, in more depth, as it were. Oh, fantastic pun there.
8: So we have a, f- a few things we do. Uh, each of the vehicles is a, is a composite of a variety of technologies, and we're experimenting with some new ideas. These are uh, lithium-ion batteries, which um, are actually really cool because they're, they're vacuum-packed. And you can see that there's really, um, it's sort of like those Ziploc bags that hold a jelly sandwich.
4: Oh, yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty small. I mean, it's kind of, what, three or four inches long, about an inch wide. So, I mean, how much power does that sort of thing give out?
8: Yes, this will give us uh, quite a bit, actually. Uh, it's almost 12 volts at about 2 amp hours. So you can really pack a lot of punch. But the other great thing about this, you can package these in an oil environment so they're pressure compensated. And we've done that and run them down to pressures greater than the deepest ocean depths. So the advantage to us is we can put these outside and we never have to open up those glass spheres that you saw on board of a small ship. So it makes turnaround very easy. So uh, we're excited about that because rather than bringing water up to be processed on the ship, we can bring our little factory with us down to the seafloor and leave it down there for a long period of time and actually get a lot more uh, of the microbes that we're looking for.
4: So obviously pressure is something that these are calibrated for. Is pressure the major problem that we look at when we're going down to study the deep sea? Yeah, it's
8: really the first order problem because that'll affect your your buoyancy. So it's really a buoyancy game. It's like having a lift to the deep sea. So we can uh, put a big anchor on these things, send them down, and uh, we have to design them to either tolerate pressure or to be stronger than the pressure. But once you're down there, it's actually pretty benign. It's, temperatures are fairly constant. Uh, there's no light to deal with. Currents are pretty nominal. Corrosion is one of the problems we have to deal with, sort of a secondary problem. But, uh, you know, those things are easily engineered around, so we've got some experience doing this. So uh, some of the problems remain the same. The uh, the core extraction problem is the one where we go down to get sediments from the seafloor. It's well known that it's like uh, trying to take a... Um, a core sample out of peanut butter. You know, it really plunge in a core tube and you pull it out and it really has a lot of adhesion. So one of the techniques that was first proposed in 1960 was a, uh, by a guy named David Moore here in San Diego. And that was actually a, uh, a technique where you take a steel core tube and it's lined with a plastic sleeve.
4: Oh, I see. So this is kind of it's almost like a drain pipe kind of size metal tube we've got here, and it's surrounded by this sort of rather sturdy-looking load of plastic rings and things. So how exactly <laughs> does this work? Well,
8: this is really great because what he decided to do was rather than uh, fight the seafloor, he was going to give it up. And what he did was he, he took this, this steel tube, and it would go down to the seafloor, hit the bottom, and then the uh, mud would push up on this release, and it would leave the steel tube behind. Oh. And it would actually draw out the plastic liner. And so you leave a steel casement in the bottom, which is actually rusts away in a short period of time and it's uh, fairly cheap. That works out actually pretty well, especially for free vehicles where you only have a limited amount of buoyancy.
4: So I guess it's one of the problems is it's not just being able to get the sample into your machine. It's being able to get the machine off the seafloor again, because I guess it's kind of like getting stuck in that goopy mud at the beach where you get your feet stuck and you can't get out and you're sort of making that sort of splatchy yep. noise, but you're obviously under so much pressure under the sea as well. So I guess it's kind of a bit of a problem.
8: It is. Uh, Some of the core samples that are done have a line that goes all the way back up to the ship with a big, powerful winch. They can haul this thing with hundreds of pounds. But with the free vehicles, which are really just uh, remote vehicles that go down on their own... All you have on board is the, uh, the buoyancy you have, which might only be you know, on the order of 40 or 50 pounds. And so we had to become a little more clever about how to get our, our vehicle back.
4: <laughs> and is this still a system that's used today? Do you still use it today?
8: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we just use it on the Philippine Sea. It's been used down in Fiji. It's really uh, the best way to go, I think. It's still uh, something of the holy grail for us to really get this working perfectly every time. But once we do that, we have microbial scientists working here on, on new medicines from the sea both antibiotics and actually cancer cure drugs, and they really need to harvest the sediments to find those animals. And so um, they're very good at that. I'm very good at this. Together we can do things that really help mankind.
4: And we're talking about all these un- untethered, unmanned vehicles, but have either of you ever been down inside something like the Alvin submersible, where I guess you're, kind of, you're packed into those tiny little room? Have either of you ever been down in one of those?
6: I have I've been down on a few dives in the Alvin and it's a wonderful experience looking out that porthole and in my case we were looking at cold seeps off the northwest coast of, of the United States. Beautiful trip. Um it's cramped in there as you indicated that you know three people crammed in in an uncomfortable position everybody trying to look out a porthole window. And there are real advantages to being right there when it comes to sampling and thinking about the science that you're going to do.
8: And I've been down in uh, a couple of smaller submarines, not the Alvin, and it's quite an experience—the first-hand observation. Roger Rivell, our former uh, director, uh, once said that instruments will only see what you tell them to look for. So, if you're measuring temperature, that's what you get. So, so uh, having the human eye behind uh, the porthole is really, really pretty nice. Uh, the great thing about uh, free vehicles, unmanned vehicles, is uh, their persistence. They can stay down there quite a long time—two years, perhaps. You know, if you want to let them study, you know, the entire annual cycle of the deep ocean, you can do that. Uh, Whereas uh, manned vehicles, their great advantage is the human eye and their mobility. Uh, We're picking up some more uh, mobility with AUVs, which are good for like a first order solution to survey a large area. Um, But I think still that there's quite a bit of opportunity for manned observation down deep.
4: You definitely see them as a a complementary pairing of manned and unmanned, not a kind of In the future, you think we'll still see both types? Yeah, Agreed. You definitely think so. It's going to be a combination. I mean, I guess because you're developing technologies to do with sending these instruments down there, from a personal design point of view, do you feel that the sort of things that you end up working on are going to be for manned vehicles or unmanned vehicles?
8: Well, I think there are crossovers, like a Venn diagram where they apply to both. Uh, Certain things work better in a manned vehicle. Other things I think work better for unmanned vehicles. But I think my my head is definitely underwater. And I think, you know, once you've been there and and you live in that 3D world, uh, it becomes easier to be an engineer, to design for that. So I think it's really an exciting place to be. It's a whole other planet. It's a whole other Earth. Things happen there that don't happen. Topside, spreading centers, subduction zones, all sorts of weird and strange animals, many of which we've yet to find. Every time we go down with a camera, we find something brand new. With samplers, we find something brand new still a remarkable place to go.
4: That was Kevin Hardy and before him Professor Douglas Bartlett from Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I'm not
2: sure how keen I personally would be to go down in something like the Alvin sub. How about you, Helen? Yeah, I'm kind of torn, a bit claustrophobic, but also it would be amazing, wouldn't it, to see all the life down there and just just to be in the deep sea and to know you've you've been there. and It, it would be fantastic. But uh, so far, no one's offered, so I haven't actually had to decide on that.
4: Yeah, I think I think it's definitely a, a toss-up between scientific excitement and personal fears of being underwater and claustrophobia. I don't know. Well, if you'd like to hear more from Douglas Bartlett and Kevin Hardy, there's a longer version of that interview at thenakedscientist.com forward slash specials.
1: Are there really plenty more fish in the sea? Find out with Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans.
2: You're listening to Naked Oceans with Sarah Custer-Perry and me, Helen Scales. And this week, we're taking a special look back at the last year in ocean science. Coming up, we'll be asking a host of top marine experts if they were a marine critter, which would they be and why. But first, there's no hiding the fact that some of my most favourite marine animals are seahorses. I paid a visit to the Moat Marine Laboratory in Florida, where I met up with Sean Garner, who runs Moat's Seahorse Conservation Project. He introduced me to his seahorses and taught me a thing or two about these beautiful creatures, which, as Sean says, are the coolest animals in the world.
3: This is a laboratory that's on exhibit to a public aquarium. 300. Fact,
2: we can see people walking by now. They're <laughs> peering in through the window.
3: Waving, yes. Um, so education is key. We want to show children and adults seahorses because it is the coolest animal in the world.
2: I'm glad you agree with me on that.
3: There's no other animal that looks, has a head like a horse, eyes like a chameleon, pouch like a kangaroo, tail like a monkey, and it's a fish that has the only true male bird. That is the coolest. But the really main thing about this laboratory is breeding seahorses, learning how to do it and sharing that information with other facilities so that they can breed seahorses. But we're breeding them for other zoos and aquariums around the country so that they don't have to collect from the wild. That's
2: great. And so how long will you keep seahorses here um, before you send them off to other aquariums?
3: We wait um, for about six months. Uh, Eight months is ideal when we ship. And we ship all around the country and hopefully around the world sooner or later.
2: How do you send a a seahorse? You send them by plane, I take it?
3: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) actually, we use FedEx, but we um, put it in a bag of water, one-third really clean water, two-thirds pure oxygen. I put um, three to four seahorses in a bag, and I give them a toy. Because, like, anyone that has driven around with kids in the back, they hit each other, they mess with each other, and I don't want that stress. So I give each seahorse a toy to hitch on to, and it's kind of like their protection um, and then they're triple bag, put it in a styrofoam shipping container, and then there's a heat pack or cool pack, and we ship them overnight. We've shipped a thousand or more seahorses, and maybe had one problem, but it's been really good. And the horses arrived there perfect. What we're looking at are the brood stock, and the brood stock means that they're animals just for breeding. They're here. They're my best seahorses right now they're the studs they're the studs um and the queens i guess um They have good genetics, Um, they're usually wild-caught. Now, I'm legally allowed to take a few wild-caught seahorses from the environment. So really, all they're here doing is breeding and eating, and um, it happens in the morning. They go up in the water column, they either do their mating dance or they transfer eggs, and um, and they kind of leave each other alone the rest of the day.
2: And uh, how often will they actually have babies?
3: The male will get pregnant, of course. Uh, His gestation is about 25 days. He will release the babies. And pretty much the next day or two days after, he's pregnant again. And this happens pretty much his entire life, from six months all on up to about four years. And he is pregnant most of his life. Now, he gets pregnant so much, he can actually fake being pregnant. This is news to me. <laughs> yeah, he can actually inflate his pouch with water and tell his girlfriend or his wife, "I'm pregnant already. I can't accept your eggs this month," and she will actually dump her eggs on the ground, which is terrible because it takes forty percent more energy to create the eggs than to just date them.
2: Wow, that's crazy. Okay, yeah. so we have this. These are the moms and dads, basically. Yep. Yep. And then they, then the babies come, and then these are the guys over here. These are some of the newborns. In this tank, well, we haven't got any tiny ones right now, but yeah, these ones here. Yeah,
3: we didn't have seahorse babies last week, but we had some two weeks ago, and we're looking at them right now. It's a brood of probably 100. Um, we're, we're looking at Hippocampus erectus, the line seahorse. Yeah, and so what they're doing is they're circulating around the tank. They're in a specially designed tank called a chrysal, or gyro. Uh, and it's a tank designed for animals that are planktonic, that are floating in the ocean, or we like to tell the kids... Planktonic means go with the flow. Um, So they're circulating, and they're eating the smallest food that we have. And we actually grow plankton here. And um, they're eating it, and they're swimming, and that's all they're doing right now.
2: And in this tank here, there is some equally as tiny animals but they're a bit older aren't they
3: yeah these are um, hippocampus zostera, or the pygmy seahorse and a very small animal one inch is pretty much max Um, they only have 10 to 20 babies at a time but they have one of the largest babies out of any other seahorse and um, they're pretty smart they actually are smart enough when we try to take them out of their parent tank they can run away from the net they know a net is danger they're very smart animals i love these guys they're so cute
2: They are amazingly cute. And they're so tiny, I can hardly see them. It's awesome. horses are pretty sensitive, aren't they, to to their conditions in in which they're living. Like the water has to be the right salinity, temperature, and so on. And and they're kind of susceptible to getting diseases, too. Is that the case, right?
3: Yeah, like any animal, they can get stressed out. Just like humans, you get stressed out. And when you get stressed out, you're more prone to getting a cold or the flu or what have you. So. Yeah, seahorses are very prone to diseases and bacterias, so we try to provide the most calm environment for them. And we found out lately that sounds are huge in the seahorse world, that loud sounds, motor sounds, and vibrations from the the world um, causes seahorses to become stressed out, which in turn gets them not to reproduce as much and not live as long. When we built this lab, we specially chose the pumps, all the lighting, all the filtration, so that you know everything is vibration-free. There's not a lot of metallic sounds in the water, and it's really, hopefully, proven to be a great thing. You know, a lot of zoos and aquariums have big tanks that have really strong pumps and concrete and vibrations. They have a lot of problems keeping seahorses alive. Well, we keep them alive and we breed them in the thousands. So I think the vibrations and the sounds are really important to seahorse's survival.
2: You've been operating on (laughs) seahorses?
3: Not me, but we have a vet that actually did one of the first laser surgeries on a seahorse. We had one seahorse a year or two ago that grew a tumor on its tail. What we did is we grabbed the animal and we actually put it under under anesthesia.
2: Oh my gosh, how did you do that?
3: (laughs) We took it out of the water and put it on a tray and ran a tube into its mouth that pumped anesthetic water, and it went right past his gills and put him under. He was dry, but he was still breathing, and he was knocked unconscious. And so the vet got the laser out, turned the setting to the lowest setting because he was so worried how frail a seahorse is, and tried to. Take the tumor off didn't work, so he raised the level up a little bit more. No go. He had to raise the level up so high as the same as turtle shells, and then he was able to take the tumor off. And so we took that seahorse and put him back in his regular water. He woke up and he survived another year or two after that. It was it was amazing. It was so neat.
2: That is very cool. (laughs) Seahorse Hospital. Here we are. (laughs) Yeah, we'll
3: do anything to keep him alive. It's important.
2: There you have it. Laser surgery for seahorses. That is really pretty crazy stuff. Well, in recent years, we've gotten a whole lot better at keeping seahorses and breeding them successfully in captivity. And projects like this at Moat Marine Labs are really doing a great job of educating people about seahorses and at the same time helping to reduce our impact on them in the wild. That was Sean Garner, seahorse guru from Moat Marine Laboratory in Florida. Well, speaking of breeding,
4: when it comes to reproducing and passing on genes to the next generation, there are various challenges that marine animals face. Finding a mate in the big, wide oceans is one problem, but what about those sea creatures that are stuck in place on the seabed? The corals that build tropical reefs have evolved a particular strategy for this, and the results can be quite spectacular. Someone who's witnessed coral reef sex is James Guest from the National University of Singapore.
9: It's a pretty spectacular event. Typically you only see it at night time. And just before the spawning, um, you know, nothing is really happening, it's very quiet and there's no activity and then suddenly, uh, within a period of about half an hour, you'll start to see uh, bundles of eggs and sperm. They're small bundles, they're a few millimeters across. They're often pink or, or red or orange and they start to be released from uh, many colonies at the same time and also often many species at the same time. And the effect is something like uh, a sort of a snowstorm in reverse, upside down. So you can imagine uh, at night time, with all these brightly coloured bundles all being released, the effect is very spectacular. It's something like perhaps being in one of those snow globes, those little toys that children have.
4: So how many times in a year do we see the Spawning.
9: Well, uh, typically the, there is uh, one, often one major event, um, so there's a kind of a, sp- a peak in spawning activity. In some parts of the world, it is around springtime. Um, however, there are other spawning events and, and not all the corals go off at one time. Some individual species and some colonies will go off more than once in a year.
4: And how on earth do the corals manage to coordinate to make sure they all spawn at the same time?
9: Um, it's still a, a bit of a mystery exactly how they do it, but basically it must be at two levels. So, so at one level the, uh, the corals must have some internal clocks that certainly run on a daily rhythm, so what, what we call circadian clocks, um, but they could also run on a, a lunar rhythm, so a, a circa-lunar clock. They may even run at a, on, a, on an annual cycle, so a, a circa-annual clock. And uh, we know quite a lot about circadian rhythms for a lot of other organisms, but we don't have much information about that for corals uh, yet, although there is some research being done now. But then on another level, there's also the environmental cycles. So the the internal clocks that the corals have um, must be sort of entrained by these environmental rhythms. So the, the environmental rhythms kind of keep the clocks in check.
4: And once they've all spawned and their eggs have been fertilised and started to develop, I suppose they face challenges like avoiding predation and finding a suitable surface to settle on. But what other potential difficulties do the coral larvae and the young polyps face?
9: On top of all the uh, natural challenges that they face, there's the um, addition of the, the sort of human impacts that almost all coral reefs around the world now are feeling, uh, I mean, aside from climate change, uh, many reefs are are, are experiencing very high um, sediment levels because of land reclamation and coastal development and so on. So um, excess sediment uh, sort of falling on top of a small coral polyp can very, very quickly smother it. Um, Another problem uh, is overfishing. So many reefs around the world have lost the big herbivorous fish, which do the job of cleaning a lot of the algae off the reef, the macroalgae, seaweeds and so on. And again, when coral spat have to sort of compete for space with algae, often the coral spat won't do as well, and so that's a big challenge for them. And then added on top of that, there's the bigger problem of, of climate change. There's not really much known about how climate change is affecting the coral reproduction We know quite a lot about how it affects adult corals. And of course, it's having a big effect because we're seeing lots of corals that are bleaching. That's when they they lose their symbiotic algae. And if they don't recover them relatively quickly, they tend to die. The few corals that are left, they're not going to have so many individuals that they can mate with. And so if you, you know, when we go back to what we talked about earlier about these mass spawning events, I suppose the critical thing for those mass spawning events to be successful is to have lots and lots of individuals all spawning at once. But if the sort of critical mass of corals has suddenly dropped drastically, as you can imagine, the the chance of successful reproduction is going to be much, much lower.
4: Because of the overproduction of gametes by the corals to buffer against things like predation, we could use the mass spawning to seed or repair damaged reefs. So either moving the collected spawn to new places or taking them back to the lab to rear them and then releasing them out into the field. Uh, How would that work?
9: so there's a couple of ways that this could be done. One one way is to sort of harvest um, uh, mass spawn slicks, just take billions and billions of embryos, and it, exactly as you said is to just is just to pump them down onto a bit of reef uh, maybe within some sort of enclosure, and try to just massively boost the amount of recruitment. The other way is uh, again, as you say, we could rear them in in the lab so that we basically we try to sort of overcome all those that mortality bottleneck that you experience in the sea and then settle them in a tank on land uh, let the corals grow up to a size where they've got a good chance of of surviving and then place them back on the reef so the first method we've done some experiments with that and although it works in the sense that we can, we can boost recruitment. Um, what we found is that if you look at six months or one year down the line, the, the reefs that we have artificially seeded don't look any different from the reefs that have not had any uh, seeding. So at the moment that particular method doesn't look like it will be very successful. The, the other method of rearing the corals in the lab for a period of time potentially has some promise, and we've had a bit of success with that in designing um, some little substrates that are cheap and easy to make, and we can settle corals onto them, we can rear them, and then eventually we can plant them onto the reef, and we've had some success with the technique. The main problem with it is it's actually very expensive to do. So really, I mean, if you had that kind of money to spend, you'd think that it might be much better to spend it on on management initiatives, on protecting an area, methods that we know are more likely to be effective, at least at this stage. I mean, I I think we need to do more research on these restoration techniques, and it may be in the future that they can have some really good uses and there's some pretty exciting stuff that can be done. Um, I think whatever happens, restoration is never going to be, the only solution we we have to uh, manage reef ecosystems effectively from the point of view of um, managing managing fisheries sensibly coastal development um, aquaculture development, and you know ultimately at a big scale uh, managing climate change but uh, but yeah, I think we have to remain optimistic and we have to have to keep sort of pushing the message that that reefs are really important that they 're threatened um, but there have been some really good examples of reefs that you know when they are well managed they recover very well from disturbances.
4: James Guest there from the Marine Biology Laboratory at the National University of Singapore introducing us to the intricacies of coral reef mass spawning and you can hear a longer version of that interview at thenakedscientist.com forward slash specials.
2: You're listening to Naked Oceans with Sarah Caster-Perry and me, Helen Scales. And over the past year, we've met up with lots of marine experts to talk about their work and to delve a little deeper into their devotion to the oceans. We asked them to tell us if they were a marine critter, which one they'd be and why. We had some really great answers and here are some of the highlights.
10: I'm Greg Rouse. I'm a professor here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I'm Carl Safina. I'm an author and president of Blue Ocean Institute at Stony Brook University.
6: My name is Mark Baumgartner. I work at the Woods Hole
5: Oceanographic Institution. Hello, my
6: name is Nancy Knowlton,
5: and I'm a marine biologist at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History.
9: My name is John Bruno. I'm a marine ecologist at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. My name is Boris Worm. I'm a marine biologist working out of Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada.
10: And if I had to be a critter, I would choose ozodax, which are bone-eating worms.
9: And if I were a marine species, I would
0: be a
6: sea urchin. I would be a brown pelican.
11: I would be a deep-sea animal, for sure.
6: I'd be
5: a Caribbean
6: boulder star coral.
10: And the species that I would like to be is a bluefin tuna. I would be a North Atlantic right whale. What's amazing about them is that the, the ones that initially settle are all females. So it's females who dissolve and eat the bone. Any new babies coming in are taken by the females and made into little dwarf males. They don't live that long, I don't think.
5: Uh, They're also, in a way, the stars of the reef, because although they grow very slowly and reproduce just once a year in about a half-hour time period, they're very strong so that when a big hurricane comes, all the more fragile corals are broken to pieces. But the star corals survive.
8: They eat a lot. They eat often.
10: Unlike most other fish, it's warm-blooded, so it's really kind of the king of the fish. So far we've found 17 species of these amazing animals and they were only discovered in 2002 and we think there are probably many more species of these all over the oceans of the world.
6: They are very beautiful animals. You know, they have these transparent bodies and these giant wings. They look a lot like angels.
9: It even changes
6: its shape, its eyes get bigger and its colour gets different so it can be disguised as it goes on a perhaps a 4,000-mile migration to the Sargasso Sea.
9: They've been around for... Probably more than 400 million years. That's more than twice as long as, uh, as dinosaurs on average.
2: And their shells are really very beautiful, very intricate uh, designs. They can be pillbox shapes and needles or even stars.
10: And I've always thought it was thrilling to watch them ripping through the surface and exploding as they chase their prey. And it looked very powerful, but also like a
11: lot
2: of fun. Well, there are loads of great creatures in there, but if I had to pick one from all of the people we spoke to, I think this one would be my favourite.
11: I'm Tim Shank. I'm a biologist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And uh, if I had to be a critter in our ocean, I would be a deep sea animal for sure. And I would be one that lived at hydrothermal vents. And I think I would be um, a shrimp, actually. They don't live that long, I don't think. But the reality is, is these guys can move and they can move throughout the vent system. And what's so cool about them is that they actually farm their own bacteria in their gills. They, they hover around the vent water and these microbes love their gills and the microbes grow. And then, so the animals just sit there and they farm off, they pick off the bacteria and they have this really cool adaptation. They don't have eyes like normal shrimp, okay? They've lost their eyes, they lost their eye stalks. Instead. They have this plate that sits on the front of them, where, where their eyes would normally be. And their eye has migrated back to on their backs. We believe that they can see with this little organ on their back that um, allows them to see black body radiation, the heat coming from the vents. We think they can image that and see it. So how cool would that be to fly around the deep sea? Looking for hot spots like that. Looking for a dim glow of light that's a hydrothermal vent. You roll up to the vent and you have a nice cool bath of water, a nice warm bath of water, and, uh, and you can farm uh, microbes right there. I think that would be so cool to be one of those.
2: That was Tim Shank from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in the US introducing the vent shrimp that feed on bacteria living in their gills and they see not with visible light but heat coming out of hydrothermal vents in the darkness of the deep sea. So, Sarah, which one was your favourite critter? It was actually a really hard decision
4: to choose my favourite, but I actually have stuck with a, a similar deep sea theme uh, and I've had to go for this just because it's so weird.
12: My name is Matt Gollock. I am the assistant manager of the International Marine and Freshwater Conservation Program at the Zoological Society of London and the chimeras are probably what I would describe as the forgotten cousin of the shark and ray. Um, We know very, very little about um, chimeras in comparison to both the sharks and rays. Chimeras are very odd looking creatures. Um, and chimera in Greek mythology actually means a creature that's created from other bits of animals, um, which when you look at a chimera, you can actually sort of believe that. And while chimera is a sort of a group term for these fish, um, within that there's um, individual species that are known as rabbit fish, rat fish, elephant fish. So there's a range of different names for different chimera species. The thing we can sort of generally say about uh, chimeras is that they they mainly live at depth, so anything down to about 2,500 metres. As I mentioned, they're related to the sharks and rays, and um, all three of these different groups of animals, the sharks, rays and the chimeras, um, have skeletons that are made of cartilage rather than bone. And if I was sort of to describe an average chimera, um, I'd probably first say there's no such thing as an average chimera. But when you get to the head end, that's kind of where it gets really interesting because the, um, they often, um, sharks, rays and chimeras, all use um, electro-sense to detect um, their prey. And the chimeras have some very unusual um, modifications of their snout um, to aid this. Some of them have very, very long paddle-shaped ones. Um <laughs> This fact, um, just I, I still sort of have trouble sort of imagining the, the mechanics of this, but the males actually have a retractable sex organ on their head. Um, and, um, yeah, th- they have um, traditional sex organs as well, but they seem to have this, this other one as well. And I, I, to my knowledge, I don't know if anyone's actually seen it in use, but um, it is something that sort of slightly boggles my mind.
4: The mysteries of sex organs on the head. Amazing that the oceans are such a bizarre and wonderful place. That was Matt Gollock from the Zoological Society of London introducing the deep-sea chimeras, those weird cousins of sharks. And if you'd like to hear more oceans experts choosing which marine critter they'd like to be, check out scientist.com forward slash oceans.
2: Well, that's almost all we've got time for. But before we go, we promised you a glimpse behind the scenes. So here are some exclusive clips from the making of Series 1 of Naked Oceans. Well, mainly just the silly bits when things didn't quite go to plan. <coughs> as, as I'm also sounding croaky too. This is the croaky version of Naked Oceans. Can you tell it's now It's turning into autumn? <coughs> We're all wrapped up. Um, that's a bit close. But
4: now
2: your mouth is full of Satsuma. Mm, that, that sounds really good. Can to have another one, excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. Mm, Christmas Trekstreamer's young. Let's find
4: out who we caught to. What? Sorry, I'm just going insane. <laughs>
2: caught up. Yeah. let carry on. Oh, I need a news story. Okay, let's do some news. <sighs> okay. Okay, we're going to wait for that noise no, noisy, to pass, because that's quite noisy. Whatever it may be. Now, three... Sorry, a bit of squishy there. Let's just take that out. Mm-hmm. And my final piece of news is that there's some good news for the oceans. Oh, God, Helen, that was awful. That was so awful. Fantastic stuff. Sh-ta-
6: la la.
4: Oh, and that thanks. That was wonderful. Thank you, loud person. Bye, Barry. Bye. Bye, Barry. Hi, Gary. (laughs) Hi, Gary. My God, shut (laughs) up. (laughs) What is this? Can you not have your loudly spoken meeting right outside
2: the room? (laughs) We need a recording sign and a big red button. Yeah. Live on air. Okay. Can you tell I haven't decided what we're going to do next month yet? No. It could be anything. Oh, I think that's... No, that's fine. Yeah. I think that's good. It's good.
4: Yeah. Well, that's almost all we've got time for for this episode of Naked Oceans. But
2: before we go, let's find out what... Blah, blah, blah. I think you might have heard my pen then. I must put oh, that down. Is that okay? I'm sure that's fine. Yeah. Okay, cool. Bye. 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 So until next time, it's goodbye from Sarah. Bye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.
4: <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> the end of the university it does, doesn't it?
2: Should we do a different ending? I think we should do a different ending. And then we'll
4: just say goodbye together.
2: So until next time, it's goodbye from me and Sarah. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> so until next time, it's goodbye from. <laughs> that was really loud. No, until next time! <laughs> oh my god. Oh, no. Don't, Please, don't don't leave. Please don't leave. If you don't listen, then they're, they're going to put us in a small cupboard and lock the door, and if, we won't be able to come out until you've listened to the show, so you have to listen. Okay. So until next time, it's goodbye from Sarah and from me. Goodbye! Oh, my God, that was cheesy.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I think you should leave it like that.
2: So there you have it, rare footage of Sarah and I messing up. Well, it just goes to show that even professionals like us don't always quite get it right first time. But we also have to confess to occasionally having some fun. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Naked Oceans. We hope you've enjoyed hearing some of our highlights from the past year. A huge thank you once again to Jessie Ossibel, Sylvia Earle, Douglas Bartlett, Kevin Hardy, Sean Garner, James Guest, Tim Shank and Matt Gollock. We'll be back next month with a brand new episode of Naked Oceans Series 2. But until then, do keep in touch. You can tweet us at NakedOceans Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at scientist.com. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.
1: Naked Oceans is produced by the Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.